Thank you for downloading or watching our sermon series titled Redeemed in Christ. We are going through the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism is written in 1563 using a question-and-answer format. The Catechism's goal is to instruct the Lord's people to understand the Reformed faith by answering common questions from the Scripture. Please join us as we walk through this historic document and ponder the Lord's grace and mercy as we are reminded that we are redeemed in Christ. Well, our catechism continues to instruct us regarding the significance of baptism and what baptism fundamentally means. Now, we're not dealing with the issue of infant baptism at this point, just laying out the significance of baptism and its implications. And so when we talk about baptism, we know, as we heard last time, that Christ is the one who sends out his disciples uh, to go and to baptize, and they are to make disciples of the nations as they preach the gospel and baptizing a community of people set apart unto Christ. So now we, we dig a little bit into what, what is the significance of baptism, and I thought it might be helpful for us to go back to Zechariah, uh, particularly Zechariah 13 verse 1 is one of the proof texts, uh, I believe question answer 69 cites in its footnote as one of the proofs for baptism and seeing how this is testifying to a transition of the promise to the realization of the promise. And so when, when we look at this, we can say, well, then what is the Old Testament predicting regarding baptism and its significance? So as we consider this, we'll see first needing a true washing, secondly, receiving a true washing, and lastly, uh, living out of that true washing. And so let's begin with the needing of a true washing. As question and answer 69 points out, these are signs and seals. Uh, it's important to remember that we get this theology from Romans 4, verse 11, uh, where Abraham receives the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness. Uh, so again, as this sign is applied to the organ of generation, uh, this is a sign that testifies that the seed of the woman will come through the lineage of uh, Abraham and Sarah. And so this is reminding Abraham of the promise. So the seal is not something that guarantees the effect. You know, like Rome says, ex opere operato, uh, which means the work works automatically is what that simply means. And so, so for Rome, when, when baptism is applied, it's beginning the, the process of justification. What we're saying is that baptism is fundamentally the sign and seal of the gospel. It's a visible presentation of the gospel. It's testifying to the truthfulness. Uh, remember, we've talked about the seal of a letter, the wax seal where the king would uh, press his signet ring into the, the hot wax so when the the letter was delivered to the intended recipient, the recipient would know that the messenger never tampered with the message. That's the point of the seal, testifying to the authority of the gospel. Now going on, when we talk about the symbolism of the sign and seal, the Catechism is teaching us that it's the blood of, and spirit of Christ that washes away my impurity, all my sins. Uh, so when we say, well, what is this symbolizing? Well, we can say the sacraments are just a visible presentation of the gospel. And the Spirit is pleased to work through this as a means of grace, as the Spirit desires to work through this. doesn't mean we're necessarily regenerate. 
It just means that when we uh, see the sign of baptism applied, we should be thinking about the gospel. We should be thinking about the ultimate washing and cleansing. And I love how the catechism brings out the blood of Christ. Uh, that you think back to the Old Testament and everything being cleansed in the blood of bulls or the blood of animals, as Hebrews will talk about the inferiority of that. But we're washed in the superior blood of Christ once for all. It's done. That's what's being pictured for us. And then the giving of the Spirit to the church, uh, testifying to the confirmation of God's promise that truly He is there with His saints and with His people. But secondly, what I like about the catechism and what it brings out is that the sacrament of baptism is not a testimony of my faith. It's a testimony of the covenant of grace. And so it's calling our attention to the bigger picture of the gospel, an intention of God's promise. So it's not about my conversion. It's about my understanding that I'm set apart unto the living God uh, individually and also corporately to live in the context of his church and with his people. And so this is where I thought it was helpful when we look at the Old Testament in Zechariah and, and his notion of the fountain. When we think about Zechariah and how he starts in, in chapter 13 and also as we, I wanted to read chapter 12 where you hear again and again, on that day, on that day, on that day, repeated. The on the day is referring to the day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord, as we find in chapter 12, is presented as the nations riding out against Jerusalem. Remember Jerusalem being the vision of peace. Uh, the irony is that here you have the vision of peace. That doesn't seem all that peaceful when you read about it. But nevertheless, as you have the nations gathering together against it, uh, they're gathering together basically to, to bring about the fullness of Psalm 2. You know, the nations raging against God, conspiring against God, wanting to shake their fist at God. And so you, you read this, say, oh my goodness, here we have all these nations riding out, is setting the stage of what we call Harmageddon. Remember the mountain of the assembly? This isn't the assembly of the church, but it's the assembling of the, of the nations riding out to make war against Christ and his church. And so this is a rather dramatic uh, prophecy that's going on here in chapter 12. Zechariah is saying, listen, you know, the, the nations aren't very friendly to Jerusalem, not very friendly to the purpose of God. Um, be aware of this reality. But here's a, the thing that Zechariah wants us also to understand. That when we're tempted to think that the promise of God has failed, we're tempted to think, well, maybe God can't establish the vision of peace and the city of Jerusalem will not stand. We have this assurance that the Lord is the one who is going to bring about the ultimate victory. And so we, we have that assurance that the Lord will conquer, he will establish his people. But then when you skip down to verse 12 or verse 10 in chapter 12, you have this tragic presentation. The people have cut off the Redeemer, and they mourn over cutting off their Redeemer. And so right here, you're understanding that a manifestation of the day of the Lord, it's not just a battle of Armageddon. It's also understanding the manifestation of the Messiah entering history and the people cutting him off and mourning, weeping over this reality. And so when, when you hear this in a general sense, you may think, well, the promise of God has failed. And we can further think the promise of God has failed 
If you remember in Zechariah's prophecy in chapter 3, where you have Joshua the high priest. Joshua the high priest being commissioned uh, with the task of rebuilding the temple. So as he rebuilds the temple, you would think this priest should be holy. You know, you would expect that. He's, he's without blemish. But you have there that court scene in, in chapter 3 where you have Satan and the angel of the Lord and Joshua there, the angel of the Lord being his defendant, Satan taking the role of the plaintiff, bringing the charges and bringing all the accusations against this priest that is supposed to be holy who's charged with rebuilding the temple and he's not doing a good job. He's blemished. But the angel of the Lord promises that he will take away this offense. So when you have this, this picture of who the angel of the Lord is, the Redeemer, the one who takes the offense of even the high priest of Israel, but the people of Israel sent him to death and mourn over his death, when we hear this on that day, it's telling us that, that there is something that's going to happen, something manifested in the day of the Lord that's going to be shown at different points in covenant history, that he's going to bring about this true redemption. And so the piercing and cutting off of this, this Messiah, this, this one uh, who comes to redeem, establishing the house of David, establishing the promises of God, is going to accomplish its purpose, that he will be victorious. The ultimate reality of this one who comes is that as we may think there's no remedy for sin, there's no hope, the reality is he is the one who takes away their sin. In fact, as we find in verse uh, 1 of chapter 13, we have this assurance that as he comes and he enters history, uh, he's the one who opens a fountain, he's the one who cleanses them from sin and uncleanness. These two words are very important. Because this is the fundamental problem of the people of Israel, the fundamental problem of humanity. That we are dirty, we are sinful. We cannot come into the presence of God as we are. We need a true, deep-rooted cleansing, washing, redeeming, regenerating, regenerating action of the living God. And so this, this cleansing them from sin is telling us the result that we're going beyond this ritual cleansing because that's the uncleanness that's calling attention to the Levitical law, uh, the codes for the priesthood, the codes for Israel and how they go about their purifications. They're not going to bring about the true purification. This one who's cut off will do this. The sin is actually the impurity that we have. And so here we, we have this understanding of who we are as individuals. Zechariah 3, telling us about Joshua the high priest being wicked, sinful, blemished, stained with sin. The people of Israel, those who need cleansing, even send a redeemer to death. Nations riding out against the Lord, having this issue of not valuing or cherishing the true God, not repenting in Psalm 2. And so clearly there needs to be a cleansing. And this is only done in Christ. So this is where we move on to question and answer 70, where we consider uh, this receiving the, the true washing. Now, when we look at this true washing, there's two points. First, again, the washing in Christ's blood, driving home the reality that when we think of baptism, we may think of only water. But the catechism wants us to understand it's not the water or the imagery of baptism that does the cleansing. 
The only thing that ultimately does the cleansing is the blood of Christ. That is it. There is nothing more. The blood of Christ ultimately makes us clean. But secondly, the picture of being washed by the Holy Spirit. Because again, what I appreciate about Calvin, book three, as I've said before, as long as Christ remains outside of us, he is of no benefit to us. So if Christ is in heaven, we're on earth, and we're on these two parallels. Um, you know, he's in heaven, we're on earth, and they never intersect. Well, then the work of Christ has done nothing. Uh, it's, it's pointless, it's meaningless, because there's no application of it. And so the, the, the catechism is teaching us that with the work of Christ, we also have the picture of the washing of the Spirit. So it's not just the washing of the water magically doing something. It's communicating to us that the Holy Spirit actually takes residence within us, that there's a true cleansing. We receive the blessings of Christ. They are our blessings. We are truly set apart in Christ, washed by his Spirit, washed by his blood. And so one of the things um, in terms of Reformed theology, if someone comes to you and says, again, there's no understanding of the Holy Spirit as someone claims that, well, in terms of Reformed theology, when, when we look at Scripture, and I, I'd say we look at Scripture correctly in terms of the Holy Spirit. Either you have the Holy Spirit or you do not. There is no possession of Christ and then a possession of the Holy Spirit. When you take hold of Christ by faith, you have the Holy Spirit. People may say, well, why is that so important? Well, if you have your doubts, if you have your struggles, and you wonder, and you're wrestling with this, and you're saying, but I believe in Christ, do I really have the power of the Holy Spirit? Do I really have the blessings of Christ? Yes, because the very fact you take hold of Christ by faith is only by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we move beyond the issue of, do I have the forgiveness of Christ, to yes, I have the forgiveness of Christ, I have the true washing, I take hold of Christ by faith, and I need to proceed in that confidence. So in terms of this cleansing, we, we might look at Zechariah and say, but what does this cleansing really do? Well, notice in terms of, of what the Lord does. We'll, we'll go back to verse 1 in a moment. But as we go beyond verse 1, again, verse 2, on that day, so speaking of the day of the Lord. And I think it's important to understand at this point, the day of the Lord's manifested at two different points. Uh, you have the cutting off of Christ, one manifestation of the day of the Lord, final judgment, the definitive manifestation of the day of the Lord. So what's being declared here is that when the Lord comes and does his work, that the idols will be cut off. It's important that he cuts off the names of the idols. We might say, well, what's, what's the big deal in that? I mean, if he cuts off the names, the idols are still there. But you have to understand, names have meaning in this context. Uh, when you look at the birth of Jacob's sons, you know, he always recalls uh, who these sons are, the circumstances of their birth, Jacob and Esau. You know, the, the very birth of, of these two sons, it, it's sort of a, a comedy. You have Esau, who's born red, he's hairy. That's what his name really means. I mean, that's, you'd call him, hey, Harry, how are you? Not Harry, but Harry, like having a lot of hair. And you look at him, and yeah, he had hairy arms. And so that would be his name, right? It literally means he lives up to his name. Jacob, supplanter, heel grabber. You have in terms of the story, Jacob continues to supplant, continues to scheme. He's a heel grabber. He's a supplanter. Lives up to his name. So with these idols, 
when, when they have their names, they're living up to their names. Standing against the Lord. Being those of the storm. Being those of the rain. Whatever gods they, they may come up with have the significance of living up to their name. So when the Lord cuts off their name in terms of um, cutting a covenant or the prosecution of a covenant. Remember Abram walking between the animals. He knows that if he fails, he'll be like the animals. And so the cutting of the covenant is something that, that's a pretty big legal deal. Uh, it's not just garnishing someone's wages like we would have in our day and age or having a judgment against an individual. Now these are, are big deals. I don't want to minimize that. But it's not having an army show up at your door and publicly executing you in a very, uh, in a very humbling way, to put it delicately, which is what would happen in this culture. It would not be a nice, easy death. Let's put it that way. It would be very clear that you do not mess with this great king. That would be the point of the execution. So when you have the cutting off and the cutting of the covenant, you're entering into a big deal. When, when you seal this thing, it means, okay, if I transgress it, you have a right to cut me off in a very uh, humiliating way, and you have a right to execute me. And so this cutting off is the Lord prosecuting this, this, the fullness of the covenant of works. He's going to cut off all the gods, all the individuals that challenge him. He's going to put them down, and he's going to show his utter sovereignty and dominion and make it public. And so this Cutting off of the names is saying that all these gods are going to lose their significance. Now, when he speaks of their name being cut off and being remembered no more, uh, it's not to say that there's no memory of Baal or there's no record of Baal or of the teraphim or of these other types of gods we read about in the Old Testament. But what it means with remembering their name no more is remembering like when it's a call, remember the Lord, Right? And so it's not that God's a distant memory, but it's a call to meditate on, on who is this God? What does this steadfast love mean? What does it mean that he's enthroned in glory? What does it mean that he resides in the holy palace, right? It's remembering these things, calling them to our attention. And as we remember them, our intention is to live in light of this reality. Struggling, yes, but living in light of this reality. And so remembering the name of the idol no more means no one's going to live in light of these idols. And that's where it goes on in cutting off the prophecy from the land. The Lord's not saying that there's a problem with prophets in the sense that he doesn't like Isaiah or Jeremiah or these other prophets or Zechariah. But what he's talking about is the false prophets of Baal. And we know that because of the, the marks on your back. You know, you read of the battle of the gods with Elijah and Mount Carmel, of where you have there Isaiah calling, or Elijah calling out to God. The Lord then consumes the altar. You have the prophets of Baal jumping around, dancing around, you know, swatting their backs, cutting themselves, mutilating themselves in the hope of getting the attention of Baal. And so that's what these stripes are referring to, of these prophets of Baal in the land who have the scars of trying to get the attention of their God. And so what they're going to say is, oh no, I, I'm not a prophet. I, I was never a prophet. I'm, I'm a worker of the soil. I was sold in my youth, you know. That's how I got these scars. That, that's how these things came about. And so there, there's going to be a shame in actually working and operating 
in the context of this God or the false gods. And so when the Lord uh, does this and carries out his redemption, the point of carrying out this uncleanness, carrying out this cleansing, carrying out his intention, is that as he cares for his people and brings about this true washing, that it's not just a superficial outward cleansing of the land, that there's going to be a noticeable change, that his people are truly going to want, uh, or they're going to bear fruit of, of living for this God and not wanting to pursue the false gods of this age, that they're going to put them to death and, and be ashamed of, of the things that they have done and want to honor their Lord. That's the ultimate cleansing that Zechariah is speaking of here in chapter 13. But going on then, when, when we wrap this up, say, with question answer 71. So what about this living out of the washing? So there's, there's sort of a, an objectiveness that you'll see the false prophets removed from the land, no longer wanting the false uh, idols. And so now it's, okay, so what about the people? How do we know there's something that's life-changing that's going on? Well, in terms of this, we notice what the Catechism is saying, that as we join together, we, we are those who understand that we walk in the significance of this baptism. That's basically what question answer 71 is reminding us. Uh, we have the understanding of the Great Commission we covered last week, being discipled, gospel going forth, being taught, instructed, uh, in terms of as we join together, we, we understand the the call of being oriented and tender to the purpose of our God, being instructed in these things as we continue to receive uh, the, the preaching of the gospel week after week and continually learn the reality of this God, being taught, instructed in these truths. So this is what the catechism is telling us, that, that we want to learn and discern what it means to live out this washing. But continuing on, not only from the Great Commission, that the catechism is also telling us uh, that this baptism is a sign of being joined to the church, as we covered last time, but also we have this washing of regeneration, citing Titus 3, verse 5, as it's cited here. Uh, this is testifying that the Spirit is present not only corporately in the body of Christ, but also within his people. And so it's that desire that as the Lord is, is working on us internally, that, that outwardly we, we see the fruits of this reality wanting to conform to our Lord. And so we can kind of look at this sign and say, okay, well, we define it simply as a sign of initiation. But I hope that as we look at Zechariah 13 uh, one last time this evening, that, that we see something more rich and profound going on here. Because if we turn back to verse 1 of chapter 13, we talked about on that day, the day of the Lord. But we have this promise of the opening of the fountain. That's what the Lord says. He's going to open the fountain. Now, we, we don't know uh, who is specifically opening the fountain. Zechariah doesn't tell us explicitly. But as we see from, from the context of chapter 12, as we see uh, of the transformation going on after this in 2 verses 6, it's the Lord that's opening the fountain. So verses 2 through 6 is where the Lord declares, I will cut off the names of the idols. I will do these things. So the implication is in verse 1, the Lord's opening the fountain. Verses 2 through 6 is where we're going to see the manifestation of what happens. 
And so what's the significance of the fountain? Why, why is the Lord opening the fountain? I mean, we know it washes sin and it washes uncleanness in, in its presentation. When we look at a fountain, we can look, for instance, in Jeremiah and his prophecy. And Jeremiah is one who's upset with Israel. He's upset that Israel has made cisterns for themselves. But as Jeremiah presents this in chapter 2, he's upset that Israel has made these cisterns, these wells. Now we might say, well, what's the big deal? Abraham dug a well. We have Isaac, meaning his wife, by a well. Doesn't seem like these wells are necessarily sinful. Why, why is this a problem? Well, in Jeremiah 2, verse 13, he tells us what the problem is. It's not an issue of cisterns. It's not Scripture teaching us whether we can have wells or not have wells. That, that's not the point. The point is, they're generating their own water and not looking to the living water which comes from the Lord. And so they're, they're not looking to the fountain of life is how Jeremiah is presenting it. And so right here we're understanding that fountain is, is presenting in the prophets as not relying on self, not trusting in self, not seeing self as the ultimate outcome and, and goal of life, but truly trusting in the Lord. But going on, we have... Psalm 36, Psalm 68, celebrating God being the fountain of water, the fountain of life. And so fountain, we have to see as, as something that's springing up from the earth, something that continually replenishes itself with water that you do nothing to cultivate it. It's just the picture as a graciousness of God giving life. But there's more to this than if we dig deeper, pardon the pun, with cistern. But we think about this, this water, and, and as we look at Scripture, we think of Ezekiel. And the prophet Ezekiel, in chapter 36, where he talks about washing his people, Ezekiel 36, 26, talking about sprinkling them with this new water. But Ezekiel 47, we think of not only the, the water of the well, but we think of the temple being filled up. We think of John 4, living water given to the, the woman at the well. We think of the river of life, Revelation 19, right? So these, these pictures of water flowing out in this fountain is something where the Lord is giving true everlasting life that never gives up. But notice that this happens on this day. So the manifestation of Christ entering history, the people have sent Christ to the cross, they pierced him, they're, they're mourning over him. We have after this the Lord bringing about a cleansing within the context of Israel where they no longer want their gods, the name of their gods are no longer called upon, remembered in the sense of delivering them. That this true life that comes about is the understanding of what this Messiah is doing. That this sign uh, that's applied to the organ of generation communicating the seed of the woman arriving in history, Right? arriving in history. On that day, this fountain that brings about the true removal of sin, the true removal of uncleanness, there's going to be a definitive point where there's going to be this, this manifestation of washing with water. So now when we look at this and we think about the significance of baptism and what the catechism is teaching us, that it's not just being washed in water, but washed in the blood of Christ. That when we have baptism being commanded at the great commission of the church going forth, 
This is telling us that we're living out of the day of the Lord, that it's a sign of the times of the new age, that we are those who move from a time of promise, that the seed of the woman will arrive and the seed of the woman will accomplish redemption, to a time where the seed of the woman has accomplished redemption. So circumcision, or doing away with circumcision, is not just doing away with bloodshed. That's part of it. Certainly it's saying that that old covenant's done away. But it's saying that with the arrival of the Messiah, the vision of peace, the establishment of peace, is set in stone. And the sign of baptism is a sign that this fountain of life has been opened up. The promise of receiving this life-giving water is our reality. The assurance that the Lord has established his redemptive program is our reality. The assurance is, as we wait for the nations to ride out at Armageddon to rise up against the Lord, the assurance is they will not prevail. And so when we ask this uh, question about the significance of the sign of baptism, or we ask about the significance of uh, this and, or, the, or the prophets talking about baptism, and we ask, well, why is it so significant? Well, it's significant because it's testifying that we are secured or set apart in Christ. That's what the sign's testifying to. Now, the sign is obviously in, encouraging us, exhorting us to embrace Christ in faith because it's not just a sign having some magical power. We're still called to make the faith our faith and take hold of Christ. But it's that visible presentation of the gospel. It's not just a movement from death to life into the belly of the sea and emerging triumphant. That's part of it. But it's also the sign of the life-giving water that is promised at the coming of the Messiah, the advent of the angel of the Lord who takes on the flesh and accomplishes redemption. It's that sign of the ultimate removal of the uncleanness that we cannot remove within ourselves because we are weak, we are feeble, and we need the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. So this sign of baptism, again, I appreciate the catechism driving home. It's a sign of being washed in the blood of Christ, having the uncleanness of our sin taken away. It's a sign of the river of life, the true life-giving spirit, being present in his church, present in his people. And it's testifying to the truth. But the gospel message is not just a theoretical message, but it's the assurance that this gospel message has come to fruition. We move from the time of the promise to the time of the realization of the blessings of Christ. Let us continue then to walk in the power of these blessings as we realize the power of Christ, as we take hold of him by faith, as a gift from the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. <music>